There's Bible verse I think about sometimes. Many times. It goes. And I heard the voice of the Lord. Saying, who shall I send? Who shall I send? Go for us. Go for us. Thank you. It's like virus. Welcome back. This is episode two in our discussion on Samson, the waste of talent. In the previous episode, we covered the groundwork of what a Nazarite is, what a judge is, how to atone for sins in ancient times, little geography, yada, 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 something about a wedding, bing, bang, boom, here comes a jawbone. Just kidding. But I would highly recommend listening to the first episode on this character study because you need to get as worked up as I do about this guy. I think that tension helps when discussing Samson's fatal flaw, which is on the level of Hamlet and Macbeth. I don't know if I can wrap up this saga by the end of this episode, but I will try. Might have a little bonus episode on this one, but let's go for it. I have a few more stories, travels on Samson to help show how he keeps amping things up. And then I'm going to really bake your noodle on a new way to think about this, and I guarantee you didn't see it coming. Again, the main source of material on this subject is a book I read, Make Your Mark by Brad Gray, and he showed me a new way to think differently on the section of the Judge's Scroll. It has been very helpful to me in my walk, so let's get into it. Speaking of uh, a waste of talent, have you guys ever heard of Christopher Langan? You should have. I I don't mean that you're dumb for not knowing who he is, because you shouldn't. I just mean he should have been as famous in this generation as Albert Einstein was in his. Instead, he's a horse rancher in Missouri. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it could be if you have one of the highest recorded IQs in the history of that test which was between 195 and 210. And also, if you got a perfect score on your SAT, even though you fell asleep during the exam. But you have never heard of him. And in between horrible beatings from his mom's boyfriend, Chris learned all academics could teach him by age 12. He taught himself advanced math, physics, philosophy, Latin, and Greek, just in his spare time. He went to college and clashed with the professors, obviously, as I'm sure he's incredibly frustrated with how slow they were. And he was probably bored out of his mind. But then he dropped out, became a firefighter, construction worker, bouncer, and a horse rancher. He did come up with something called the cognition theoretic model of the universe, a.k.a. the theory of everything. And he says that it can prove the existence of God. But as he said in the article I read, I doubt it will ever be read, published, or taken seriously, and that my lack of academic credentials will hinder it. But uh, I'd love to take a look at that one, Chris, if you get a moment. I don't want to dump on this guy, but you can see my point. Chris didn't ask to be one of the smartest people that ever lived. I'm sure he felt it was a curse most of the time. How can you have a relationship with anyone when they have no chance to stimulate you at all? He's looking at all of us rubbing sticks together while he's holding a blowtorch. This reminds me of Samson. Like I said, this is a lifelong vow. He never asked to take, and the superhuman strength, it almost puts him on an island. He has to feel like a fish out of water most of the time. But from all of us looking on the outside, we just like to see greatness. 
And when you see it used to just destroy everything in your path, you, it, you're almost more sad about the potential of the guy. Or at least that's what I think. All right, when we left our anti-hero, he had just slaughtered a large group of people, shocker, that came to attack him after he destroyed their entire economic system. He's in the cave at Edom, which happens to be really close to Bethlehem. Never heard of it? So some of the Jewish townspeople are alarmed at all the Philistines in this area, and they take 3,000 men and try and figure out what the heck is happening. They get the story from asking around and find out that it is Samson and tit for tat, back and forth between him and his sworn enemies. They huddle up and they come up with a plan. We got to get this guy out of here. He is nothing but trouble. They tie him up and they hand him back to the bad guys. Remember, this is the judge for this chosen people group at this time. His leadership is so poor that his own people hand him over. Here you go, Philistines. Sorry about all that. This guy's a bull in a china shop, huh? Okay. Here he is. Do, do what you want with him. Just leave us alone. We didn't do anything. You can imagine how this goes. Quote, as he approached Lehi, the Philistines came towards him shouting, and the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. There's a spirit again. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax, and the binding dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. End quote. That's Judges 15 right there. So Samson is like, uh, we're taking it up a notch. Like George Costanza driving his in-laws to his made-up house in the Hamptons. Bonus points for you Seinfeld fans if you can name those pretend horses. But you see what I'm talking about here. Probably not, and I'm sure the Costanza comment didn't help much. But Samson is now stacking his broken vows one on top of the other. No more killing with his hands. He found a weapon, and this weapon has meaning. The detail of this being a fresh jawbone means what? It, it means it came off of a donkey that recently died. It wasn't a dagger that was cleaned and bleached and formed by a craftsman out of a bone. He ripped this thing out of the head of a dead donkey. So he touches a dead body yet again. But this time he doesn't just eat some honey with his new corpse. He uses the dead body to make a thousand new dead bodies. Stacking his chips in the broken vowel portion of the story, he leveled up on disobeying the God thing, you know? Oh, yeah, and did you catch the Spirit of the Lord there, right at the beginning of yet another killing spree? Yet he writes a song about himself, and he sings it, taking all the credit. He names the place Jawbone Hill, which is hilarious. And after all of his exhaustive evil efforts, he's about to die of thirst, believe it or not. He reaches out to God, finally. I guess you could call this a prayer, maybe. You tell me. Quote, you have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? End quote. Similar to our study on Jonah, but here we are late in the story, and this is the first even mentioned by Samson to Yahweh. And what does God do? He gives him the water. <laughs> Why is God helping this judge who seems to be on a personal vengeance mission? Is this building the kingdom or is this a turf war? All right, back to the book. What happens next? Into Judges 15, quote, Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines, end quote. So here we are 20 years later, all of a sudden, it appears that Samson, I mean, retired, I guess. Retired isn't the right word that had no place in this time frame. More to the point, it seemed like he just quit his job. The text doesn't lay it out there, but when you compare it to all the other judges, their job is over when they die. 
Samson is different. His time frame is said both during his reign and after his death again. That's unique. And if there's one thing I've learned from my Bible studying and reading is that if something is repeated or doubled or mentioned multiple times, you need to sit on that for a minute. Pay attention and meditate on it. All right, well, whatever your take is on this, nevertheless, we are 20 years later in the story. That's a given. Samson is bored. He decides to take a little trip down to Gaza. If you have your map handy, this is where some of that superhuman stuff comes into play. Assuming he left his home from his home, Gaza's 40 miles away. I can't talk my wife into driving into the city for a nice dinner because that's too far of a drive. This guy has no job or business there to deal with. He just goes. And, and also, if he, if he did the home to Gaza trip, guess, guess a couple of the cities that he passed by. That's right, Timna, for starters, where he ruined a wedding and got his fiance and her whole family killed. And Ashkelon, where he killed the 30 guys and stole their clothes. And, and what does he do when he gets to Gaza, you ask? He hires a lady of the night, prostitute. You guys should read that. It's in the Bible. You should read the Bible. It's pretty great. And after he crashes for the night, there's obviously quite a buzz in the town. Quote, the people of Gaza were told, Samson is here. So they surrounded the place and they laid in wait for him all night at the city gate. And they made no, no move during the night saying, at dawn, we kill him. End quote. That's Judges 16. So the reason for the excitement and the angst in this city is because this is a major city for the Philistines. And here comes the most legendary foe of theirs. They hate this guy. And like I just quoted on retirement, Samson ruled in the days of the Philistines, which means the Philistines are doing all right, man. They're still pretty strong during this whole reign of Samson because, as we've discussed, he didn't do much with his power except hand out personal revenge. Samson isn't a terrifying, great, and worthy opponent to the Philistines. He's simply an absolute pain in the neck. He doesn't ever seem to threaten the Philistines as a, as a people group. But what they do know is every time he comes around, it's a problem. He is a thorn in their paw, and they are sick of it. And now here's another chance to kill this guy. And yet again, Samson's ready. He wakes up in the middle of the night and does something that is truly out of the realm of the limits of this world. I, I got to admit, I kind of like this one. I mean, Samson is a man the way the Titanic is a boat. You know what I'm saying? This one made me laugh, and it goes, quote, He took hold of the doors of the city gate, together with the two posts, and tore them loose, bar and all. He lifted them to his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. End quote. Judges 16.3. Man, this is such a big league taunt. Let me explain. First off, the dude rips the city gates off of the hinges. <laughs> but if you have in mind like a great set of wooden doors from a movie, then you nailed it. That's right. Think of like Robin Hood or Braveheart or Dracula or Highlander. These are similar to doors that would go over a drawbridge, maybe. Okay, but if not, if not, they're at least large enough for horses to come through. And it's probably built to stop a battering ram or some type of enemy attack. So let's say on the very conservative estimate that these are four to 500 pound doors. And I promise that's on the low side. All right, next on the list, he hikes these bad boys all the way to the city of Hebron. This is a trip that is 40 miles and over 3,000 feet of elevation gain. Have you ever used like an Apple Watch or a Garmin to see your elevation when you go for a run or a hike? 3,300 in elevation gain is, that's kooky talk, man. 
This physical feat is quite literally impossible, and his reasoning again is what? It's self-serving. It's a taunt. The city gates mean safety, security. This is a move that simply says, I own you. I took some time off, but never forget that I can do whatever I want whenever I please. And if I feel like taking 20 years off and then using your gates as a trophy, then as Bobby Brown famously said, that's my prerogative. That's it. That's the point of the story. All that happened and then the story just moves on. It's crazy. So now we get to our girl Delilah. As it says in 16 verse 4, it appears that Samson, quote, fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah, end quote. All right, well, this is good news, right? Samson heads home, falls in love with the girl next door. I mean, the Sorek Valley is where he grew up. He was in the next valley over. Sorek is also where Timnah happens to be. You remember Timnah, where he shredded a lion apart with his bare hands, burned whole fields with jackal tails and had a little... Uh, you know, problem with his first marriage. Let's not focus on that, all right? Guys, Samson's in love. Come on. But as you can imagine, Delilah is not in search of love. She is in search of a paycheck. She isn't a a gold digger in the sense that she's looking for Samson's wealth, but she's on a contract, guys. We find out that she's been hired by the Philistine leaders to get the info, the info that Everyone is in part of this world has been wondering, what is the source of Samson's power? How can he do these things, and how can we stop him? Delilah is a great tactic because she's gorgeous, she's smart, she's seductive, and she's money-motivated. Now, maybe the reason she's so persistent in this tale is the pot at the end of the rainbow for her is, listen to this, $16.5 million by today's standards. That's right. So if she gets this information out of our hero, she will secure the bag for 16 mil. And as Bernie Sanders might say, she will now be in the 1% of the 1% of the 1%. Sorry, I had to do that. So you want to know another cool detail of the story? We are finally given a woman's name. In all the previous parts of the tale, all the females in his life have been nameless. We get her name, though, and as with everything in the Hebrew text, it has meaning. In Hebrew, Lila means night. And the word day means of. So Delilah means of the night. Can any of you recall what Samson's name means in Hebrew? Previous episode? That's right. Little son or of the son. The reason we get her first name as the first woman in this story is because this is a standoff. It's a showdown. In one corner we have light. In the other we have darkness. This is good versus evil. Israelite versus Philistine. Sun versus night you should have some Genesis bells going off in your head. It's almost like the Bible's one connective story, huh? All right, back to the book. Delilah wastes no time. She goes to the jugular. First words we get from her are, quote, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued, end quote. Uh, listen, Delilah, I'm no Columbo, but this doesn't seem to be the best approach I've seen. Maybe we should build some trust for a day or two. I mean, make the big guy a, a meal or some wine or something before you just spill your candy in the lobby of what you're looking for. What's even funnier is how Samson reacts. He plays along. I think he treats this like a game. His pride has gotten so out of control. He is willing to put himself in like a Houdini-like trap and see if he can get out. And I guess I can't blame the guy. He's Teflon Don, man. Nothing sticks to him. The guy's been tied up multiple times. He's killed thousands of people, broken his vow multiple times, dominated the Philistines, stolen giant doors. 
I mean, nothing can touch him. And in his opinion, God is by his side and seems to bail him out every time. He gets caught slipping here and there, a few close calls. You know, he flies a little too close to the sun like Icarus. But after three rounds of Samson absolutely toying with Delilah, and he's cracking himself up, he lets one slip past the goalie. This guy hates a nagging wife. That much is clear. He finally caves and says, quote, No razor has ever been used on my head because I have a Nazarite vow dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become as weak as any other man. End quote. And jackpot. It's over. Delilah gets word to the crew and starts seeing the dollar signs, and they wait for him to fall asleep in her lap. They come in silently and go straight great clips on this guy. Just like a samurai warrior cutting off his top knot, Samson will be stepping down soon. And now he is officially batting a thousand on all vows broken. Congratulations, champ. All the parameters that the creator God asked you to keep, you have torched. And it's about to cost you. They shave him and they shackle him. And the scripture tells us, quote, the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes and took him down to Gaza, binding him with bronze shackles. They set him to grinding grain in the prison, end quote. He's taken to Gaza for reasons we discussed earlier. It's the big show. New York City, they have the ultimate trophy. You can't put baby in the corner. We get one small glimmer of hope as they're taking him down, verse 22, but the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. I might come back to bite them. All right, next up is the finale. The Philistines throw a slammer of a party, celebrating their chief deity, and he is Dagon. About 3,000 people come to the event. Dagon's a pretty prominent god in the pantheon. He's mentioned a few times in scripture, and it's very well documented in Assyrian and Ugaritic texts as well. Supposedly, this is the father of Baal, or Baal. He was half fish, half man. For my Jonah listeners, what is Hebrew for fish? That's right, it's Dag. So we have Dagon, the fish god. He is mentioned other times in the Bible when um, like poor King Saul gets pinned to the wall of, the, of his temple in 1 Chronicles 10. And then 1 Samuel 5 is another spot. But this is when Yahweh mops the floor with Dagon and, and his temple and humiliates him. But it makes no difference. But I just wanted to mention there's a few spots for the deep dive listeners if you want. Okay, so at the party, some of the people are starting to get loose. They call for Samson, bring out the zoo animal, so to speak. Let's, let's take a look at him and laugh at this guy. We got him. So they're throwing stuff at him. They're spitting. They're mocking. They're tripping him. He's newly blind, remember? It's not, it's not a good look. So Samson meekly goes up to a servant. He kind of, you know, pulls somebody aside. Hey, put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple so that I may lean against them. And I guess the servant didn't seem to think you know, there's much of a threat, and he obliges. Then we get our next prayer from Samson. Quote, Sovereign Lord, Adonai, Yehovah, remember me. Please strengthen me one more time, Elohim, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. End quote. Similar to his first prayer, he reaches out only when he really, really needs God. We never do that, do we? Nah. We're always ahead on our prayer and acknowledgement of God and what he's done for us, right? We never wait until we're up to our neck in a trial to finally see if Yahweh or Jesus would like to uh, participate in our lives. No, we never do that. He's asking God for personal revenge, yet again, per his usage. Quick sidebar, 
did you hear me mention anything about how God replies in this? Think about that for one second. We'll get back to it. Okay, so finally, into the tale, we read, quote, Then Samson reached the, towards the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against him, his right hand on one, his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. And thus, he killed many more when he died than when he lived. End quote. Samson literally goes to the Valley of Sheol, a.k.a. the grave, with one last final break of his vow. If anything, this guy is consistent, man. I'll give him that. He's not allowed to kill. I think we've been pretty clear on that. And he decides it's his last move on this earth. He's going to kill more people than he ever has before. Do you see how fast his acts of revenge escalated over the arc of this story? It started with what? A single lion. Then we move on to 30 men. Next, it progresses to an an unknown number of people. Then it's a thousand near Lehi and the cherry on topping 3000 men and women as he topples the building down. And I bet there was a huge smile on his face as he did it. If Samson had a tombstone, it would read his mantra. I only did to them what they did to me. The blind poison of revenge with Samson as is with all of us is the thought that if I just hit them back hard enough, they will stop retaliating. The sad news is that your opposition typically is thinking the same thing. And what's the result? Death. In this case, physical death, but we might see spiritual death if we look closer. The question that I want to ask before I really bake your noodle here on this discussion is why does Yahweh continually show up and answer the prayers of this guy? Even when the prayer or the practice right after is pure, vengeful evil. Does this seem like the... I don't know, man. This doesn't seem like the creator God that I know in this role. Have you, have you seen from Yahweh or the Holy Spirit or Jesus in Scripture act like this? I, so I ask, what is going on? And I answer. You ready? I don't think God ever does answer this guy. You assume he does because of what's happened, and it's not in the text. I mean, outside of the water, he helps him there. He gives him the drink. But I don't see God answering his prayers to knock down the pillar. His hair grew back. His hair is the source of his power. It grew back and he got his strength back. And you ready for this? The hair is the gift. Your gift might be sales, public speaking, engineering, organization, art, music, your personality, humor. Samson got a pretty cool one. That's right, but it's simply a gift given by God. And, and Samson can choose to use it for Tove or Ra, just like Jonah's temper, just like Cain, just like Moses, just like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The vast majority of character studies in the Hebrew scriptures is what? God takes an extremely flawed individual. He puts them in a test and they are pushed to a place where they find out if they can achieve things or not. And they explode more than their wildest dreams. Do they mess up 50,000 times along the way? Sure. But that's the journey, man. Samson never sees past his current circumstances and wastes his time on this planet. Here's another one that hopefully you got to think about for a minute. The spirit of the Lord was a no-show for the temple destruction, right? Come to think of it, the spirit of the Lord wasn't mentioned in the entire last chapter of Samson. The last time we heard from the spirit was at Jawbone Hill. Wait a minute, Tyler. I thought the spirit of the Lord was with Samson and strengthened him to perform all these amazing feats of strength. That's how I learned it. That's what the Sunday school teacher said. 
That's what my preacher said. Get ready for this one. There are 10 feats or exercises of Samson in this story. 10 times where he goes Hulk style, does something superhuman or amazing. You know how many times the Spirit of the Lord is present? Three. Three times. The killing of the lion, the Spirit rushed upon him. The killing of the 30-minute Ashkelon, the Spirit rushed upon him. And the killing of the 1,000 at Lehi. That's it. Not when he sets the jackals on fire, not the killing at Timnon the wedding, not ripping the gates off, escaping Delilah's bowstrings, ropes, and looms, and definitely not the killing of the 3,000 at Dagon's temple. Hell, Samson says so himself to Delilah in 16 verse 17. His strength comes from his hair. You shave it and I will be like any other man. It never says anything about the spirit of the Lord providing these incremental superpowers, especially ones that lead to revenge. So I've come to the point after reading this story and studying the scripture, I've gone 180 degrees on this one. Not my wonder of where God was on the, on the other seven. No, I want to know what in the world was the spirit of the Lord doing to Samson on the three where he's about to kill. Does God want these terrible things to happen? The no killing vow was his idea in the first place, right? Why set this guy up to fail? I mean, the spirit and the Yah- and Yahweh are one, three and one. That can't be opposed from each other. The spirit of the Lord wants to kill lions and murder thousands of people with a jawbone ripped out of a donkey carcass? Come on, dude, that can't be right. There has to be more here, and there is, of course. And it goes back to the text in the original language. I've gotten a touch into the Hebrew language in the past couple of years, and man, it helps solve so many problems that you have with your Bible. It's baffling and annoying. I wish more American preachers would be locked in on this. I don't know why, but it's very helpful. Have you ever met someone that speaks two or more languages or is from another country? Of course you have. You know, when you ask them, how do you say uh, X in your language? Sometimes they'll reply with an answer like, well, we don't really have a word for that. We just say Y. Here's an example of that. It's kind of been taken down and debunked. It's not as many as, it, as people say it is, but it used to be said that Inuits or Eskimos, I don't know if I should so say Eskimos anymore, Inuits, they have around 50 words for snow. It turns out it's probably less than that, and it's not as much on the nose, but the point of it is to describe the type of snow. Snowball, snowflake, frost, fine snow, wet snow, snow on ground, snowbank, blizzard, blah, blah, blah. Similar to English, which has about 400,000 words and can be very confusing and annoying at times. If I was starting a study on snow and using Hebrew, it would be very, very basic. If English has 400,000 words, Hebrew has about 8,000 So each word carries weight. So you have to sit on them and meditate on the meaning. It's so cool. Here's another one. The Hebrew word for tree is eights. By that Hebrew use of the word, you can do it for anything close to tree. Eights means wood, timber, stock, plank, stick, gallow, firewood. See what I mean? Hebrew does this all the time. And there's so much wordplay in the Hebrew scriptures that we miss. We don't even get to participate in it. Like the word for ark as in the huge ark for Noah, which will be my magnum opus topic on this podcast one day, that word is used for the basket that Moses' mom puts him in and sends him down the river. He's in an ark to save his life and is placed in chaos waters. That's page one. See the deep meaning there? We miss this over and over in ancient Hebrew. would have An ancient Hebrew would have gotten the reference. A little, uh, I see what you did there, type of thing. Like a Kevin Costner film. The guy loves subplots, and so do the Jewish people, and I love it. All right, where where was I going with this? 
Let's get back on track, land the plane, back to the book. This is the best example of what I'm talking about. It comes in the lion story. As they approach the vineyards, he's about to go into the vineyards. No wine, Samson. Suddenly a young lion came roaring towards him. The spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. Okay, here we go. Powerfully in Hebrew is zalach, and its meaning is, you know, rush, prosper, succeed, or be powerful. Pay attention to the nuance there. That's how you read Hebrew. Here's another annoying point. The Hebrew does not have in the phrase, so that. What it should say is, and. So what I'm saying is that that sentence should say, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he tore the lion apart. Quick sidebar here. The lion is a young lion. They call it a young lion. That detail is huge. This is the only time in scripture that young lion of lions is used. I think it might be one more, but I know it's rare. The author went out of his way to convey that. Dude, this could be a cub for all we know. This could be a baby lion. It's a young lion. This might not even be a real threat to Samson. And that makes way more sense to me when the spirit shows up. Samson, leave this thing alone. He is no problem. The Hebrew is not saying that the spirit is responsible for Samson. It's saying that Samson had no idea. Now, if you take yourself out of the previous knowledge of this story, that position starts to make more sense. What is the character of the spirit of the Lord? What's his nature? When else does the spirit of the Lord do work in the Bible? The spirit is heavenly wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, intelligence, perspective, discernment. And he comes and tries to talk to his God, ordained representative in this land of the Gentiles. He shows up right before Samson is about to do something stupid. And I think this is a spiritual poke in the ribs. I think this is the spirit trying to save Samson from himself. Hey, Samson, we got bigger fish to fry here, man. Leave this thing alone. You are called for something higher. Don't go towards the vineyard. Let's move on. You are better than this. This has happened to you. It has happened to me. Probably much more subtle, but it's always there. Right before I'm about to do something stupid, I get a tiny little lifeline. A guardrail bump. A text will come through. A wind chime. A word on a TV will hit me. A car horn. Tyler, don't, don't turn on that channel. Don't go into the bar. Don't hit send on that email. Don't send that text to a family member. Don't buy that. You don't need it. Something. Try and pay attention to that in your life. It will surprise you how many times it happens. I laugh when it happens to me now. Sometimes I see it and I turn. But sometimes I still do the stupid thing. But God gave me an out. That's what I think it is. A chance. A test. What is Samson's response to every chance he gets? He tore the lion. He went down to the biblical, you know, the, the key motif of going down. He went down. He grabbed the jawbone and wrecked ship. Maybe. Maybe the spirit is rushing upon Samson to give him a little thought bubble. A chance to reconsider, and in every case, Samson does what is right in his own eyes, violating his vows over and over. And here's the scariest and saddest part about Samson and ourselves. Eventually, you tune the spirit out. Eventually, you stop hearing the warning signs. You get desensitized to it. You feel less and less warning bells go off. The further you get from your connection with the Heavenly Father, you block it out and you keep plugging. You know you do this. I do. It comes to a head sometimes, and oftentimes the, the, it, 
that collision's too late. You're already way out over your skis. So once again, we have a character in the Bible that might not have made sense to us the first time you went over it, but when you dive deep and you see that this story is a tale as old as time, Samson's struggle is our struggle. I think that's why it's included in the scriptures. Look, man, I'm a romantic. I want a bow on my stories. That's probably why this one bothers me so much. I want things to work out. I want an ending. We get none of that here. And wrestling with that tension is how we learn from this. It's the prayer you have for your kids. Learn from others. Learn from their mistakes. Don't go off the cliff with your dumb friends. See the flaw and pivot. Be better. How many times have you told the angel on your shoulder to get lost for the night? I'll see you in the morning. Let me live my life for once. That's the spirit, guys. God is calling us for more than a Saturday night. He is trying to show us the potential of what a human can be and finally had to send himself down in flesh to personify that in the form of Jesus. Dude, the tragedy of Samson is the lesson. It's the gift. God says, Samson, use this strength to show others what I am like. As a Nazarite, I want you to epitomize a lifestyle that is in lockstep with me Put on a show and interact with the world through that filter. Samson didn't want to do that, and it cost him everything in his circle dearly. So the lesson is, dear reader, have you identified your gifts that I gave you? What are you doing with it? Are you living it out? Are you shining your light? Are you anchoring it for God's glory or your glory? What is your end game? Make money, retire, and die? When you leverage your gifts for personal safety, wealth, gain, purpose, you are robbing your creator. Do you see that? Matthew 5, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Your focus must move towards that of God and away from your desire. It just does. It has to. Point two, are your gifts benefiting anyone other than yourself right now? Are you focused on yourself or others with what you have? Have you ever had a mentor or a coworker stop dead in their tracks and help you, even though they're extremely busy? It's awesome. Jesus was once asked what the greatest of the Jewish rules are. He gave a double answer. Basically, love God and love others. Did Samson love anyone? Did he have any friends, any deep relationships? Did he pour into anyone? No. He was a lonely, miserable person, and he could never stop thinking of his current state and how he just didn't like it. If you are a Jesus follower, this is a big deal. And lastly, delight, guys. Have joy. Find happiness in anything you can. Samson was so despondent. He had such an advantage to do something great, and he wasted it. It it can be tough to find happiness in this world, but it's there. When you link up with Jesus and start working for others and the kingdom, all of your petty problems seem to lose their power. Don't get me wrong. They will always be there, but they lose their stranglehold on your thoughts, your posture, your actions. You can see the forest through the trees. Be you. Be different. Whatever makes you weird, that's what makes you great. Don't hide behind the risk. No excuses. Don't waste your life. You keep looking at others and the gifts they got, and you want those. You want those shiny objects. Man, I wish I had their traits. Well, you don't. Sorry. Why would God give you those traits if you're going to waste the ones he gave you? Don't be like Samson. God loves you. He wants you to maximize your talents because he is doing big things in this world and he wants you to come on in for the big win. The healthier you are, the more bold you are, the more joyous you are, guess what? 
the more effective you are in executing the change this world needs out of you. God is on a mission to reclaim the humans. We are supposed to be priestly kings who rule and reign creation hand in hand with him. Go check page one if you don't believe me. You are a walking, talking temple in an upside-down kingdom thanks to the perplexing and mystifying work of Christ when he came down. You're an ambassador. You're an image-bearer of God, and your role is to spread little pockets of Eden all over this creation so we can get to the last page of the text and rejoice forever together in the new heaven and the new earth. So my message is to you. Find your passion, accept the offer, and get to work. I am Tyler Parker, and Sunday School is out. Oh,